I remember uh, getting my first Bible after I became a Christian. I was baptized at 12 years old, and I got my first real Bible, you know, because before that, I had the King James Version of the Kids' Bible. Maybe some of you had seen that. It's got the pictures in it. It's got that famous picture of Jesus sitting under the tree with the children gathered around him. Yeah, that was my Bible as a kid, but I got my first real Bible when I, when I was baptized. And I also got these labels that you stick on each chapter. And so it was pretty cool. I got to stick a label on each chapter of, of the, or on each of the books of the Bible. And so uh, it really helped me discover the books of the Bible and learn that. Well, I'll never forget a couple years down the track, I uh, was flipping through my Bible. And for some reason, I think in a Sunday school class I was in or something, they wanted us to turn to the book of Amos. I'm sure all of you know where the book of Amos is. But I was appalled that it had been a couple years, and I didn't realize that I had, I had uh, stuck together the entire book of Amos. I was just so uh, broken up by that, you know, and uh, as I'm sure you would be if you knew that you'd done that to the book of Amos. Well, the book of Jude is a little bit like the book of Amos. It's not really a book that we look at very often. Most Bibles, it's maybe a page long, but really the book of Jude has a powerful message, and I wanted to bring that out to to you this morning. Uh, Let's look at the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. Now, Jude, uh, he doesn't start off by saying he's this great author of the New Testament Testament book. He just kind of starts off very humbly, and he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Very humble introduction to his letter. But what you may not recognize there is that Jude, being a brother of James, who was a brother of Jesus, and so Jude was actually a half-brother of Jesus. But what he says there is he's simply a servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant is doulos in the Greek. It can be translated uh, slave. So he's a slave of Jesus. He didn't acknowledge that he was a brother of Jesus, but a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And then he addresses the letter to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And so that's how he begins his introduction to this simple letter. But I want us to look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. You see there, the Jude was going to write this letter as a letter of encouragement, an encouragement to the first century Christians because of the salvation that they all had together in Jesus Christ. But rather, he felt compelled to, to uh, preach to them and to teach them that they needed to contend for the faith that they have for the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. And so that's where we begin, contending for the faith. You know, oftentimes we have a tendency to look at faith as something that God bestows upon us and we have very little to do with it. But that's not the picture that, that uh, Jude paints here. He's talking about the idea of contending for the faith, to fight for it, to defend it to stand up for it in everything. And he goes on to talk about how immoral men and false teachers have, had come into that first century church and they were trying to lead those early Christians away from Jesus into all other kinds of thoughts and other kinds of religions. And so Jude says to his readers he feels, he feels compelled to teach them about contending for the faith. The, I liked how the new American Standard Version he says contend earnestly for the faith. It conveys this idea of struggling and fighting to win. And so several translations use the terminology earnestly contending for the faith. Do all that you can 
to stand up for the faith and defend the faith. And you know, people will fight for, for the things that, that are most important to them. And people contend for a lot of things. People contend for the closest parking spot, don't they? I know some of you do that, especially at the gym, you know, when you go to work out. You've got to find that front parking space. You know, people contend for, for simple things in life, but people will fight for the things that are most important to them. Martin Luther, the great reformist and theologian, he said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And so Jude gives us here the kind of faith that is worth something, the kind of faith that is worth fighting for. It's the genuine, authentic faith that we all have in Jesus Christ. It's the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. And that's the kind of faith he's talking about. Now, I want to take you all the way down to verse 22 and 23, because uh, Jude addresses here those certain men. He talks about the men and the destruction that they will lead you to, and it goes all the way down through there until he gets to verse 22. And I think this is where he starts to define what that genuine faith looks like. Verse 22. He says, Be, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is the genuine faith. And that's what genuine faith looks like. It's the kind of faith that is merciful to those who doubt. I liked how the message version of the Bible uh, phrased this, this entire passage here. This section, he says, merciful to those who doubt. The message says, go easy on those who are hesitant in the faith. You like that? Go easy on them. Now, it may be that, that you're talking about a non-Christian person. Of course, non-Christian people, they doubt our faith. They have great doubts about our faith. But it's not for us to condemn them because of their doubts. You see, far too often I think that Christians condemn the secular world rather than showing mercy to them because they doubt. You know, we, we shouldn't expect the unchurched people to uphold our moral values, to uphold our faith because... They don't believe it. They doubt our faith. They're not going to uphold it, and we shouldn't expect that. We should show mercy to them in hopes of pulling them around and showing them the salvation that they can have in Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to excuse the behavior and the actions of those unchurched, of those non-Christian people, but as Christians, we should love them and show mercy to them. But you know, Christians also doubt. You know that? Many of you have probably doubted your faith and and wondered about it. Even the best of us struggle to, to remain fully on fire and strengthened by our faith. There's many reasons for that. Sometimes as Christians, uh, Christians neglect their faith, I would say. They neglect the Word of God. And they, they don't read it. They don't pick it up. It stays on that, on that dining room table and you never look at it. And all of a sudden, a couple weeks down the track, you're, you're doubting your faith because you've been neglecting the Word. Sometimes you neglect your prayer life. You don't call out to God. You don't pursue Him. You don't speak to God and have conversation with Him in prayer. And that leads to doubting, and you begin to doubt your faith. But there's other reasons why Christians might doubt their faith. Some Christians doubt their faith because they've gone through a traumatic or tragic event in their life, and it brings questions into their minds. And they begin to question the faith, and they begin to doubt it. And so we don't always know why Christians may be doubting their faith. But we need to be careful not to judge them, those of us who, are, who happen to be stronger in our faith at the moment. We have to be careful not to judge them because of that, but to be merciful to them and to love them. 
And so Jude says that the genuine faith is the kind of faith that patiently helps those people who are doubting along, that's merciful to those who doubt. But he also says there that genuine faith is also the kind of faith that snatches others from the fire and saves them. Now, that's kind of an awkward statement. It's hard to understand that. But again, I like the message version. It says, go after those who take the wrong way. Go after those who take the wrong way. You see, there are some people who are heading down the road of destruction. And it's up to us as Christians, we have the obligation to chase after them. To honestly and lovingly go after them and draw them back, pull them back. It almost uses this picture of physically taking that person that's caught in sin and dragging them out and dragging them back to Christ. It's that picture of snatching them out of the fire. Now, sometimes there might be occasions when you do have to physically go get your friend and remove them from that sinful situation. Maybe your son or your daughter. And we all know the situations that are leading them down a path that they should not be going. And as parents, it's our responsibility as Christians' parents to snatch them out of the fire, to make sure they don't go down that path. And so maybe physically, sometimes that's the option. But sometimes for us as Christians, it's something as simple as speaking the truth into someone's life. Now, we might think that that's, uh, that's an easy thing to do. But we all know at times that's very difficult. If you're close friends with somebody and you know that they're heading down a path they shouldn't be going, one of the hardest things you'll have to do is speak truth into their life. But that's what, that's what Jude is saying when you snatch them from the flames. You do whatever it takes to snatch them from the flames. Now, now uh, it's not good enough for us to have that Kiwi attitude, she'll be right. She'll be right, mate. No worries. They'll come around. You know, when it comes to our faith, that attitude is not the best attitude to take. Because, because if you say nothing as a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're committed to your faith and you say nothing, then doesn't that actually call into question the authenticity of your own faith? Have you ever thought about that? If you willingly sit by and watch those you love participate in sin and say nothing, does that not call in the, the, to question your authentic faith? Does it not? If you're, if you're not willing to stand up for what you believe in, then it calls into question your own faith. Now, I know that people have the right to make their own choices, and people will make their own choices. And it's not your responsibility to change other people. In fact, I would say that you're not going to be able to change them. But it is your responsibility to speak truth into their life and to help them see the truth and to see the, the error of their ways and to draw them back as best you can into the faith, into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, so that's what Jude is saying. Genuine faith is the kind of faith that is merciful to those who doubt. It's the kind of faith that is willing to snatch others from the fire in, in hopes of saving them. And then he says, genuine faith is also willing to show mercy to others, but a mercy mixed with fear. A mercy mixed with fear. Now, I like the message again. It said, be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. I like that. Be tender on, with sinners, but not soft on sin. In other words, love the sinner, hate the sin. Now, I know that's a cliche that we say a lot, but it's still valid. We love the sinner. We hate the sin. Because at the same time, people need to know 
when their lifestyle is in opposition to what God wants for them or of what God requires for them. And you see, the Bible talks about Jesus in such manner that he says, Jesus came to bring peace, but he also came to bring division. And so Jesus will bring peace to you if you're living in his will, if you're living by his standards. But Jesus will also bring division and conflict into your life when you're living outside of his will. Now, it's not that Jesus causes you uh, conflict. It is the fact that Jesus has set up this standard for us to live by, and that standard is best for us. We will, we will have the best life if we, can, if we can live the standard in which he set before us. Because Jesus doesn't make you be in conflict. What happens is it's the consequence. Jesus brings destruction and, and division because that's what sin brings. And Jesus allows us to go down that path if we get caught up in sin. But his desire is to bring to us that peace that passes all understanding. And that's the peace we can have through Jesus Christ. And so we are to bring the mercy of Christ, but yet the fear of God to those who, whose lives are corrupted by sin. Now growing up, I knew that my dad loved us. And I knew my dad loved us because he was loving and kind to us at times. But boy, could he show us the fear of God sometimes. I'm telling you what, the worst words we could ever hear growing up from mom were, I'm going to tell your dad. That just sent the fear of God into all of us. And we start begging the mom, 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 no, please don't. We'll be better. We'll be better. Please don't tell dad. That's kind of what this passage is, is illustrating here. He's kind of saying, he's saying, to others show mercy, but a mercy mixed with fear. It's, it's I love you, but you got you to gotta know that the path that you're taking here will lead to a very fearful existence. You see? I don't think it's good enough to allow, to allow our kids to remain living in lives of sin without saying anything. It's not good enough for us as Christians to stand around and watch those we love uh, live lives of sin. We have to say something. We have to present them with the truth. And the truth is that God is a loving God, but He is also a God that should be feared because there are consequences to those sins. And that's really what my dad was doing for us, showing us the consequences of our sins, bringing the fear of God to us. And so it, it is a sense of we bring the love and mercy of Christ, but we also do not hold back the need to, to have the fear of God. It's mixed with fear because there are consequences for the, for the immoral lifestyles. There are consequences for sins. There are consequences here on earth, and there are also eternal consequences of that road that leads to destruction and hell. And we don't like to talk about hell very much in today's culture. We don't like to bring it up. But sometimes you have to wonder, what do people think they're being saved from if we never talk about what they're being saved from? And that's the fear that Jude, Jude says. He says sometimes there's a need to mix in a little fear to let people know of the consequences that are going to come from that life of sin. And so he says that genuine faith is the is the kind of faith that is uh, filled with mercy. You're merciful to those who doubt. You snatch others from the flames in, order, in hopes of saving them. And to others you show mercy, but mercy mixed with fear. Now I want to take you back then to verse 4. All the way back to the beginning of the letter here. Verse 4. 
He says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And so he, he begins to explain now how certain men had come in and they're beginning to corrupt that early church. They're beginning to oppose the faith that they have. And that's why there's a need to contend for the faith. And you know, there's so many things outside of the church that we have to contend for in our time, in our priorities, our energy, that we sometimes forget that we have to also contend for our faith even in the midst of the church. And I know that sounds kind of odd. Why do you have to do that? But it's conveying this sense in which we contend for our faith 24-7, 365, all the time. This is what we do. We stand up for our faith. We believe in it. We fight for it all the time. We never let down our guard. And Jude brings it home by saying there, there are also false teachers in amongst the church. Now, as I reflected on that, it's a hard thing to reflect on because we like to think that we come to church and the church is filled with good, godly people. And for the most part, it is. But I have to tell you that I've seen certain times when the, some of those people who I thought were good and godly were actually leading others astray. Now, I reflected on that in my own home church because as, when I was younger in my home church, that church influenced me greatly and led me to God. And, and all the influence from my parents and from the people in the church, those who taught Sunday school, all of that influence led me to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. But as I became an older teenager and even into young adults, I, I became aware that uh, sometimes within the church you can't that let down your guard. Because within those groups of, especially as a late teenager and young adults, there were things happening there from people who I, I thought were Christians that was kind of unbelievable for me. It was hard for me to accept. And uh, I would say it's not a standard for all churches, but it was, it was what was taking place there. And I'm talking about there were drugs from people who were called Christians. There was alcohol. There was sex. There, was, there were other things all involved there. And many in that group let down their guard and were led astray. And even today they're led astray. And that's really hard for me to accept. But it's taught me through the years as I've reflected on that. The need for us never to let down our guard when we're contending for our faith. And Reuben and I would stand up here when we preach and we would tell you not to accept everything we say as, as the gospel, as solely true, just, just on our own voices. All of you should learn the Word of God and you should study the Word of God on your own and you should come to know it. You should be able to answer many of your own questions. That's what it means to grow into that fully discipled person. It means that you are able to, to approach the Word of God yourselves and to grow in that. Now I would tell you that Reuben and I would never purposely try to lead you astray. But what I'm saying is when you listen to preachers on television, when you listen to preachers in other churches, you should know the Word of God so much that you can test and approve what they're saying. That's what it really comes down to. Well, I want to give you this, this picture of, of what happens to, to those men who were led astray. Because what Jude does is he begins to discuss how God blesses those who seek Him and how, how He destroys those who do not seek Him. I'm not going to read all these next 11 verses or so, but I want to look at verses 5 through 7. He says here, Though you are already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That's a little bit of that fear that he says you should mix in there. You see, the fact of the matter is that God accepts and loves those who follow him, but those who are heading down that road of destruction will be destroyed. And so he continues then to illustrate in the next few verses there how God uses the faithful and destroys the godless and the wicked. Until you get to verses 17 through 21 here. Let's read that together. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. There's a few things in that passage. First of all, he says, the apostle said in the last times. And, and then he illustrates that they are in the last times because those men were in that first century church. And I would argue that they are possibly here today. That's why you need to know the word of God. And this is how then you contend for your faith. And what Jude says is you contend for your faith. First of all, in verse 20, he says, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, he says, keep yourselves in God's love. Let's look at that. This is how you'll be able to contend for your faith, by building yourselves up in the faith. And how do you build yourself up in the faith? Well, I think you look at the example of that early church, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's a good example for us. It's kind of a good routine for us. And and. When you think about it, you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. You study the Word of God. You, you come to know the Word of God. You invest time in the Word of God because that's the only way that you're going to be able to contend for and defend your faith is if you know the Word of God. And the Spirit works to help us pray according to God's will. In fact, in Romans 8, 26, it says the Spirit, the Spirit will help us in our weakness because the Spirit intercedes on our behalf when we struggle to, have the, to put the words together in prayer. The Holy Spirit will come and pray, and pray before us to God. The Holy Spirit will speak to God on our behalf. And so the Spirit leads us and guides us and gives us God's will in prayer. And so our desires should become God's desires. But you know, all too often in our prayer lives, our prayers become very self-centered. We pray a lot of self-centered prayers. And I don't know if that's the best thing for our Christian faith, because we should pray all kinds of prayers. We should pray for ourselves and, and our faith in ourselves, or our faith in God for ourselves. And we should pray for others. We should intercede on behalf of others. We should be lifting up those, the needs of the church, the needs of other people. And so prayer is wide and varied, but it should be directed towards God's will, not our will. I like what Michael Green said about this. He said, the Christian must not only study the scriptures if he, wants to, if he is to grow in the faith, but he or she must also pray in the spirit. For the battle against false teaching is not won by argument alone. It's not won by argument alone. 
You see, we must always keep in mind that we're in the midst of this spiritual battle. Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's why this is more than just an intellectual argument that we're doing. It is a Christian faith. It's a spiritual exercise, and we should lift that up to God in prayer. Prayer is a vital component to building up your faith. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Ephesians 6.18 So Jude says this is how you will be able to contend for your faith. First of all, you build yourselves up in the faith and you pray in the Spirit. Secondly, he says, keep yourselves in God's love. Now this phrase can be rendered to remain in the sphere of God's love. To remain in the realm of God's love. It's kind of a hard thing to understand. Because what does it mean to keep yourselves in God's love? Does it mean that you have to do something in order for God to love you? Do you have to accomplish this list of tasks before God will love you? No. That's not, that's not what Jude is saying here. Jude's not saying keep yourselves in God's universal love. Because the Bible says that God loves us unconditionally. John 3.16, For God so loved the entire world that He sent His only Son. And God's love is... We, we can't go away from God's love or stay in God's love in the sense that God loves you whether you're Christian or non-Christian, whether you believe or not, God's love is upon you. But what I believe that Jude is simply saying here is to stay in the location of God's love where you can experience His blessings. To keep yourselves in the location of God's love where you can experience His blessing. Because that Greek phrase for this is, is the phrase of the concept of the sphere or the location, the realm of God's love. And so what Jude tells us then is to remain in the place where God's love can bless us. Now I think that makes a little more sense for us. Someone described it this way. God's love is just like the sunshine, constantly shining down on us. But we can put up umbrellas and various other barriers that shut it off and keep it from shining on us. And you see, when we sin, it's like we put up that umbrella and block out the sunshine of God's blessing. And so God's love has a hard time shining down on us when we're in the midst of sin. You see, our sin keeps us from enjoying the blessings of God. Think about that. If you're caught up in an immoral lifestyle, then it's going to be hard for you to experience God's blessings. If you're caught up in sexual immorality, it's hard for you to experience the, God's blessings of a marriage covenant relationship. And there's a whole lot of other things you'll have to worry about. But when you enter into that marriage covenant the way that God has laid it out for us, you can experience God's blessings in many different ways. In a relationship you never thought you could have. You can experience God's blessings in the sense that you don't have to worry about anything in that relationship when it comes to, to the sexual things. You see, you can't experience God's blessings when you're caught up in the midst of sin. And so Jude says we must learn to remain in the circle of God's love. Keep yourselves in God's love. So then it becomes kind of easy to recognize and understand what contending for the faith means. It is ultimately wrapped up in those two commands. Build yourselves up in the faith. Keep yourselves in God's love. Now, did you notice how that verse 21 ends there? 
It says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That's what it's all about, folks. That's what we're waiting on is that eternal life, that eternal life that we can have in heaven. And until we get to that point, what Jude says is we must contend for the faith here and now. Look how he wraps, wraps this letter up with a doxology, verse 24. He says, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before the glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Isn't that a great conclusion to the letter? Jesus Christ died for every sin that you will ever commit, and He will present you before God on that great judgment day as faultless, as if you've never sinned, and He will present you before God with great joy. It will be His honor to present you before God as if you've never sinned, faultless. What a great day it will be. What a great day it will be. But until then, we must contend for our faith. We must stand up for it. We must fight for it in the midst of a world that does not believe it.